Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello everyone, this is Trevor Cully, and welcome to episode 44 of the History of Persia, also Sprach Zarathustra. This is the second part of a two-part episode on the life and teachings of Zarathustra Spitama, more commonly known as the Prophet Zoroaster. If you haven't listened to episode 43 yet, I do encourage you to go back and listen to that first, because I am mostly going to just pick right up where I left off. The last episode covered the early life of Zarathustra Spitama, how he received his revelation about the supreme god Ahura Mazda from Vohumana, and covered the theology of an exchange of blessings from the mortals to the immortals, revitalizing one another through the ceremony of sacrifice and praise. At the end, I started to get into the Zoroastrian concept of the state of mind. A good state of mind leads to the mantra, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, a concept that remains at the core of Zoroastrianism to this day. And obviously, we can see how the idea of good thoughts directly spawns good words and good deeds, which are the basic concepts of ritual worship and sacrifice, the things needed to revitalize the gods and keep the universe spinning, as well as to receive blessings and support from the gods to the people who carry out the sacrifice. At the end, I started talking about the state of mind and why it was so interesting to me and 
how it was one of the concepts that first made me interested in ancient Iran to begin with. So that's where I'm going to pick up today. I have no doubt that I will butcher important parts of theology while trying to explain this, but I feel like I have to, because it really is very important. An image that sticks firmly in my mind is a sort of diagram from the first chapter of Zoroastrianism, an introduction by Jenny Rose, which is a great starting point for anybody looking into the academic study of Zoroastrian religion and history. I'll post a picture on the website for those who want to look at it, and link Professor Rose's book down in the episode description. It's a fairly simple diagram, though. Picture a circle, divided into four quadrants. Two are labeled good and bad, while the other are labeled body and mind. That's the basic concept of reality. Four states of being, called Ahu. Everything exists in both a bodily form and a mental form. In both the world of the body and the world of the mind, there is a tension between good and bad. Those are the literal translations of the words used in the Gathas and the rest of the Avesta, but it might be easier to understand put a different way. Everything exists on both a physical and a spiritual plane. In both the spherical and spiritual Ahu, both Asha and Druj are trying to exert influence. In the physical world, that takes the form of righteous followers of Ahura Mazda and proper religious ceremony competing with lying and violent people and ritual pollution. In the spiritual Ahu, that is the Ahura and the Daiva competing for influence. But one of the things that first struck me about Zoroastrianism is that people, human beings, actively exist in all four categories. Everyone experiences some degree of push and pull between right and wrong in their lives. For some people, it's more or less extreme, but it's obviously something we all experience. And obviously, we can all agree that we exist in the physical world. Unless you're Rene Descartes, I guess, but that's not important. But then we get to the state of mind. Every single person has thoughts. I think we can all agree on that, too. And in this basic Zoroastrian conception of the mind, both our usual understanding of the brain and thoughts, as well as something more like the human soul exists, in the spiritual realm where it is acted on by good and bad divine influences. This idea of your consciousness as your actual soul in direct contact with divine beings was the thing that really struck me and sucked me in alongside the mantra of good thoughts, good words, and good deeds when I first discovered Zoroastrian philosophy. Thus, the mind, and therefore individual people, are free to choose between those influences. When people use their minds to choose Asha, they have good thoughts, which leads to good deeds and good words. When they allow the druge to influence their minds, it leads to evil words and actions. Still with me? Great, because that's not the end of the Zoroastrian idea of the universe. In addition to those four current states of being, there are also three temporal states of being. Conventionally, this is described as the past, present, and future. But in this schema, the present includes everything from the beginning of the universe to its end. 
The past is really more like primordial, the state of being everything existed in before Ahura Mazda organized the universe in accordance with Asha. The future is a combination of both a sort of post-final judgment and an afterlife. Trying to condense this idea into one thing, while still focusing on the Gothas by themselves, is very difficult, because the future is definitely the least developed state of being in the Old Avestan hymns. To a degree, this makes sense. The future is uncertain by definition, but it also becomes much more fleshed out as a part of Zoroastrian theology in later generations. Centuries later in our narrative, during the period of the Sassanid Empire, we will have clear descriptions of separate afterlives for the good who followed Asha and the bad who were corrupted by the Druge. The good are placed in eternal paradise, exalted by Ahura Mazda and adorned with splendid riches. The bad are placed in a gloomy cavern, imprisoned on the far side of a river and surrounded by lesser daiva in a sort of prison guarded by the Yazada, the good spirits. For obvious reasons, Christian translators have traditionally labeled those afterlives as heaven and hell. The Gothas are much less clear. There is a house of the lie, i.e. a house of druge, for people that are, quote, of an evil dominion of evil deeds, evil words, evil self, evil thought, and liars. Then its opposite appears to be the house of song, which is the final destination for righteous followers of Asha and the domain of Ahura Mazda. While the Sassanids eventually developed this divine comedy-esque description of the afterlife, the Gothas only have very brief summaries. The other concept of the future is also underdeveloped in the Gothas. The future in the sense of the end of the world. Zoroastrian eschatology, the study of the end times, is really only alluded to in the Avestan hymns, both older and younger. However, it clearly exists and is referenced by Zoroaster in the Gothas. This apocalypse is called the Frashokoreti, which somebody correct me when I pronounce that wrong. It means something like the restoration, one last act of revitalization for the whole universe in the same sense that ritual and sacrifice revitalize Ahura Mazda and his followers in day-to-day -day life. It's not well defined in the Gothas, but Zoroaster did make an interesting comparison between the Frashakareti and a horse race. If you can imagine a horse race as it would take place on the steppe, in which riders race to some arbitrary landmark in the open grassland, the path that they are racing on continues on forever, despite a technical endpoint. Similarly, the Gothas portray the final restoration as a point on a path that seems endless because we don't know what to look for. And yet, the followers of Asha still have to keep following that path, because eventually they will reach the Frasha Kareti. The Gothas also introduce another historically important concept in conjunction with Frasha Kareti, the Salshiant. Again, butchering it. The exact meaning of the word has puzzled linguists, but could roughly be understood as one who will be strong. The Gothas do not explain what exactly the role of the Salshiant is supposed to be, 
or the Salchiance plural, which is used three times over the course of the Gothas. One thing is clear. A Salchiant is someone who opposes Druge during Frasho Coretti. Beyond that, a wide range of interpretations have developed over the last 3,000 years that interpret Salchiant as a singular figure and as a collection of people, and either as a ceremonial ritualistic role or a full-blown messiah. Ceremonial interpretations include everything from every follower of Asha working toward becoming a Salchiant who opposes Druge in their own life to make the world better, or a singular idea of the Salchiant as one last poet sacrificer who will lead the followers of Ahura Mazda during the end. Then you also have a messianic interpretation of the Salchiant as a final avenging champion of Ahura Mazda and Asha that will lead the purification of the world during the apocalypse, not dissimilar to Abrahamic ideas of a messianic figure. Or, in the plural sense, a series of champions who will lead this purification repeatedly at the end of each cycle in time. One thing that does seem to be consistent from the Gothas down through the history of Zoroastrianism is that the Saushiant and Frashokareti will accompany a moment of final purification and the defeat or destruction of the Druze, the Daiva, and their followers. Zooming way back out, away from the nitty-gritty of theology, sacrifice, and the nature of reality, there are two basic, consistent, interwoven themes. Everything that is good is in line with Ahura Mazda, his Ahuras, and Asha, all of which is destined for eternal paradise in the House of Song. Meanwhile, everything that is bad is corrupted by Druge, because they follow the Daivas and Akamana. Even though they are not specifically named, the Gothas make it clear that these corrupting Daiva were gods that were actively worshipped in the Bronze Age Iranian society, and the actions and beliefs that were in line with Druge were things done by the followers of those gods. When the whole theology is oriented around the condemnation of people's actions and religion in opposition to the Reformer and his group, in our case, Zarathustra's Patama and his followers, it shouldn't be hard to see why the people outside that group weren't huge fans. People in general don't like being told that their beliefs will lead to eternal suffering in the house of lies. As a result, we should hardly be surprised that Zoroaster and company were persecuted by the neighbors for years. How do we know this, beyond the logical progression I just described? Well, Zoroaster tells us himself. Each of the five Gothas includes a declaration of persecution, how the followers of Asha were despised and driven away by the followers of the Druge. Additionally, the Gothas also give the distinct impression that Zoroaster's community was not always able to provide a robust sacrifice. Four out of the five Gothas have a refrain called the Poet's Complaint a verse describing how the poet sacrificer is unable to take the portion of sacrifice that is owed to them as a payment for performing their duties, either due to conflict with his followers or to a lack of sacrificial goods. 
All five of the Gothas follow the same general formula to describe the conflict between the followers of the Ahura and the followers of the Daiva. The hymn opens with a conflict between Zoroaster and the Daiva worshippers. The prophet calls out to Ahura Mazda, or the Ahuras in general, for support. Then there is a contest between the forces of good and evil before a conclusion in which the followers of Asha triumph. Sometimes the conflict and contest are very literal, as in a debate between Zoroaster and an unnamed Daiva worshipper, and other times it's more metaphorical, and is just a discussion condemning Druja's influence in the universe. In the end, though, the message is always clear. Asha triumphs over Druj, and the Daiva are condemned. Despite all of the focus on persecution and personal conflict for Zoroaster and his followers, the Gothas actually imply that they were partially composed after the Zoroastrians found a safe haven. According to later tradition, which generally agrees with the inferences and illusions found in the Gothas, Zoroaster and his early followers wandered from place to place, trying and failing to convert various communities to their new religion. Finally, they succeeded when Zoroaster came to the royal court of a king called Vishtaspa, who became the first ruler to convert himself, his family, and by extension his small kingdom to Zoroaster's faith. From then on, he was honored as Kawi Vishtaspa. Of course, I've mentioned Vishtaspa before because he was probably the namesake of Darius the Great's father, known in Greek as Histaspes. The Gathas also mention Vishtaspa's wife, Hutausa. Hutausa is the Avestan form of another name that should be familiar to us by now. Atossa, the daughter of Cyrus the Great, wife of Cambyses and Darius, and mother of soon-to-be King Xerxes. That connection is particularly intriguing to those who want to argue that Cyrus the Great was influenced by Zoroastrianism, though it's not at all concrete proof. According to tradition, Zoroaster continued to try and spread his religion and came into conflict with the Daiva-worshipping community, but was able to find peace and respite at Vishtaspa's court. He had three wives and six children, three sons and three daughters. The fifth Gatha, the fifth Gatha, was composed explicitly in honor of the marriage of Zoroaster's daughter, Horukista, to Vishtaspa's son, Jamash. Later tradition eventually stated that the great prophet died peacefully at the age of 77, though I should note that much later stories from the Shahnameh, the Iranian national epic, written down by the medieval poet Fedrosi, tells an alternate version where a non-Iranian invading king murders Zoroaster. But as I said, that version is much later and part of an epic poem. After his death, Zoroaster has lived on not only in the minds of his followers and their descendants, the so-called Zoroastrian religion, but also in the minds of every culture they encountered over the following 3,000 years and the field of historic linguistics. The five surviving hymns believed to have been composed by Zarathustra himself are the bulk of surviving Old Avestan literature. They are far from extensive, my English translation covers them all in less than 50 pages. Beyond that, very little Old Avestan has been preserved. That's not to say none, though. The Yasna Haptangaiti, 
meaning the seven verse yasna or seven verse action is the second longest in the old avestan period next to the combined gathas of course the gathas are much longer my translation of the yasna hapten gaiti is about three pages long but it contributes Generally, the Yasna Hapten Gaidi is believed to be a hymn composed only a generation or two after Zoroaster's death, but possibly a product of editing a pre-existing pre-Zoroastrian hymn for Zoroastrian purposes. The last very short piece of Old Avestan poetry that comes down to us are three of the four most sacred prayers. These are four prayers which are really more like four declarations or hymns or mantras. They represent some of the latest Old Avestan and earliest Young Avestan pieces. In their traditional order, they are the Yatha Ohuvairyo, the Ashemvohu, the Yanghe Hatam, and the Eryaman Ishio. The Yatha Ahuvairyo and the Eryaman Ishio are both in the Old Avestan form of the language while the Yanghe Hatam was either composed during the transition from the Old Avestan phase to the Young Avestan phase, or translated from Young Avestan back into Old Avestan at a later date. The Ashemvohu is firmly considered Younger Avestan, but is a relatively early example, still kind of in that transition period. It isn't known why exactly these hymns, the Gathas, the Hapten Gaiti, and the Four Prayers, survived while the rest of the Old Avestan corpus was allowed to die out, no longer transmitted from poet to poet. We can guess that most of the Old Avestan corpus was outdated or superseded by hymns composed in the younger Avestan language, but that doesn't explain why the surviving examples survived. It seems implausible that there were no other contemporary records and accounts of Zoroaster's life and work. The later traditions of his life had to be rooted in some earlier, presumably Old Avestan, oral history. And the Gothas are obtuse and obscure ritual hymns. They wouldn't really be well-suited to teaching theology. It seems like the five Gothas that survived were probably an original collection, either composed that way by Zoroaster or organized that way by his immediate followers. Perhaps they were considered the absolute best examples of Zoroaster's own poetry, or of Old Avestan poetry in general. Or maybe they were the ones used as teaching tools to educate future poet sacrificers in the Old Avestan language. Either way, the same considerations can be made for the other Old Avestan hymns, and they don't all necessarily have to share the same explanations. What we do know is that this Old Avestan collection I discussed today became the core of Zoroastrian ritual practice quite early. All of them were incorporated into the Yasna, the traditional liturgy that is recited in a formal Zoroastrian service. Most of the Yasna is composed of later Young Avestan hymns and prayers, but the Old Avestan texts are situated in the middle of the ceremony at the most sacred moment, the pressing of the Homa, which is interesting as Homa itself is not mentioned directly in the Gathas. Thus, we can see that there was an early understanding that these Old Avestan hymns were special. 
The four most holy prayers preempt the Gathas. Then four of the five Gathas themselves are recited before being interrupted by the Yasna Haptan Gaidi and the last of the four prayers. And then it, the whole section concludes with the fifth and final Gatha. That is the primary place of Zoroaster and his hymns in the religion of his descendants. But beyond Zoroastrian religious practice, he had an additional profound legacy. The Old Avestan hymns and prayers that we still have today are thought to have achieved some kind of official recognition before the rise of the Persian Empire under Cyrus, about 600 years after Zoroaster's death. I hesitate to call it a canonization because of all the Judeo-Christian context with that word, but it's not a bad comparison. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Whether or not Cyrus and his family were proper followers of Zarathustra's doctrine and teachings, or merely practiced a variant of the Iranian religion that was more distantly connected to the prophet, isn't actually all that important. What is important is that the spread of the Persian Empire and Iranian culture along with it also spread knowledge of Zoroastrian teachings and figures, most notably Zarathustra himself. Of course, like so many things about the far eastern side of the Persian Empire, by the time it reached the far western side in Lydia and Greece, the stories and information tended to get muddied and confused. As a result, 
when the stories of Zarathustra Spitama first reached Greece, there were two versions, one in which he was a Persian sage or philosopher, and also one in which he was Chaldean, the dominant ethnic group in Babylonia at the time. The Chaldean story was probably the result of Babylonian or Assyrian intermediaries because it led the early Greek writers to record his name as Zoroastres, the E's ending being a common way in Greek to identify Mesopotamian names. When Zoroastres was passed into Latin during the Roman period, it was revised for Latin grammatical structure as Zoroaster, the form of the name that has remained famous in European languages to this day. The conflation between Zoroaster and Chaldean philosophy also had another spin-off effect that led to the Greeks, Romans, and later European historians to identify Zoroaster as the founder of the discipline of astronomy. The Babylonian philosophers and mathematicians were famous for their study of the stars, as the perceived most ancient Babylonian astronomer, Zarathustra was credited with its founding. This idea of Zoroaster as the founder of astronomy lasted until the Renaissance, and you can actually spot him in the corner of Raphael's School of Athens holding a celestial globe dotted in stars. The Greco-Roman tradition developed a bizarre range of dates trying to pin down the time period of this famous sage's life. Most of the sources which try to assign a date to Zoroaster are late, from the Roman period or even after that. The one that gets it closest is actually from the 5th century BCE, around the same time period as our narrative. Xanthos of Lydia was a historian in the mid-5th century who stated that Zoroaster lived about 600 years before Xerxes' invasion of Greece, placing him around 1080 BCE. That's about where modern linguistic consensus places Old Avestan. Unfortunately, Xanthos's work is mostly lost to us today, only surviving in fragments, summaries, and fragments within the mostly lost work of Nicholas of Damascus. Later scholars in the late Roman and Byzantine periods regarded Xanthos as one of the most reliable classical historians, and one who had a much better understanding of Persian culture and history than many of his contemporaries. Other Greco-Roman sources ended up placing Zoroaster at the impossibly ancient date of 6000 BCE. This includes famous figures like Pliny the Elder, Plutarch, and Diogenes Laertius. Obviously, 6000 BC is pure fantasy. It would predate any other known historical figure and language, and even most mythical figures for that matter. Other classical sources place him later in the timeline, around the 9th century BCE. Most notably, this includes Ctesias, and later authors who relied heavily on his Persica. Ctesias associated Zoroaster with the legendary Assyrian queen Semiramis and her husband Ninus. According to Greek legend, Ninus was the founder of Nineveh and the first king of Assyria. Semiramis was married to one of his generals and advised him during the invasion of Bactria. After her husband killed himself, Semiramis married Ninus and ruled in her own right upon his death. 
In reality, Nineveh is much older than this time frame, Ninus is largely fictional, and the Assyrians never got past the Zagros Mountains, much less to Bactria. Semiramis is most likely based on the real Assyrian queen Shamuramat, wife of Shamshiadad V, who ruled as regent from 811 to 808 BCE, before her son came of age. Given these discrepancies, it's probably safe to assume that Theseus was just associating one famous Mesopotamian legend with another. Still others, like Ammianus Marcellinus and Nicholas of Damascus, place Zoroaster in the 6th or 7th centuries BCE. Interestingly, there seem to be two separate reasons why this time frame was chosen by different authors. Earlier Greek authors told stories about the famous philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras going east to study with Zoroaster. These stories can largely be discarded. Pythagoras, much like Zoroaster, was so famous and highly regarded in ancient Greece that he became a nearly mythological figure. To actually go everywhere, meet everyone, and do everything Pythagoras is said to have done, he'd have to have been about 200 years old. The other reason Roman authors, mainly later Roman ones, placed Zoroaster in the 6th century BCE is based on a combination of incorrectly identifying Kawi Vishtaspa with Darius the Great's father and the Sassanid Persian tradition. After centuries of oral traditions and some very intentional condensing of the historic timeline, the Sassanids, who became the ruling dynasty in Iran around the 3rd century CE, traditionally placed Zoroaster around 630 BC. Despite this inaccuracy, the Sassanid Persians are undoubtedly the most important figures for preserving Zarathustra Spatama's legacy. For more than 1500 years, from about 1100 BC to 500 CE, the Gathas and other Avestan traditions as a whole were preserved and passed on orally. Poets and priests memorized the hymns of their forebears verbatim to recite for both study and ceremony. That finally changed around the year 500, when the Avestan texts were written down for the first time. A new alphabet was devised to record the Avestan hymns, a variant of the established Middle Persian alphabet which itself was derived from Aramaic rather than Old Persian cuneiform. This may have been crucial in preserving the Avesta, including the Gothas and our only primary evidence for Zoroaster himself. Just 200 years after the Avesta was written down, Iran was conquered and occupied by the Arabic-speaking rulers of the first Islamic Caliphate, and Zoroastrianism found itself a persecuted religion in its own homeland. Over time, more and more Zoroastrians converted to Islam, leaving only small minorities in Iran, Central Asia, and India. If the Gathas or other parts of the Avestan corpus were only preserved in the minds of a few individuals, those ancient hymns and prayers were much more vulnerable to being wiped out and lost forever. Our oldest surviving copy of the Avesta comes from about 1000 CE, but is clearly a copy of the Avestan script and text recorded by the Sonids for the first time 500 years earlier. 
Even then, most knowledge of the Avesta was lost to those outside the Zoroastrian community for centuries. In the West, as Christianity came to dominate the Roman Empire, and the empire eventually collapsed, the stories of an ancient Persian sage and the Greco-Roman authors who recorded them were largely ignored and lost until the Renaissance, by which time most of the source material was gone for good. Meanwhile, in the East, the Arabic caliphates came to dominate most of the region, and actually maintained more of the Greek information on Zoroaster than the West did, but most of it was incorrect. During the Hellenistic and Roman period, Greek authors wrote extensive works of philosophy and semi-fictional history attributed to ancient figures, including Zoroaster. Arabic chroniclers and historians believed some of these apocryphal Greek accounts and repeated them, further muddying the history of Zoroaster in medieval documents. Few of these apocryphal accounts survive today, but other documents make passing references to them or even cite them. When Zoroaster's name was finally rediscovered in Europe, it was once again in the form of those muddled Greek and Latin accounts, some of which actually had to be translated back from Arabic. Meanwhile, in Iran, Zoroaster was being constantly recast and redefined, from the younger Avestan segments of the Yasna, to later commentaries in Avestan and Middle Persian, to the Shahnameh, and right down to the present, different Iranian groups and writers have redefined Zoroaster as the moral paradigm or hero that suited the message they were trying to present. And when Europeans finally encountered the Avesta for the first time in late 18th century India, and the name Zarathustra was reintroduced to a Western audience, they went right back to doing the same thing that millennia of Iranian, Greek, and Arab writers had done before them. Zarathustra was used as a mask to present their ideas of philosophy with all the validity of a 3,000-year-old sage. Most famously, this occurred in Friedrich Nietzsche's thinly-veiled Also Sprach Zarathustra, or in English, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a book for everyone and no one, which inspired the title for this pair of episodes. Nietzsche used the name of Zarathustra as a vessel to discuss his controversial ideas of the death of God, the Ubermensch, and will to power. Around the same time, Reliable academic commentaries and translations of the Avesta, including the Gathas, were being produced for a non-Zoroastrian audience for the first time in about a thousand years. It's only in the last century or so that scholars, both Zoroastrian and otherwise, have been able to dissect and analyze the content of the Avesta and the Gathas to parse out the information about Zarathustra Spatama which I am able to present today. And there, with about 3,000 years of history crammed into 22 pages of podcast script, I think I can wrap up this episode, well, episodes, on the life, times, and message of Zarathustra. In the next episode, I will return to the narrative with a much easier topic covering the death of Darius the Great and the rise of King Xerxes. While you wait consider going over to Patreon and finding the bonus episode where I start reading the Gothas from beginning to end. In the meantime, 
Don't forget about the upcoming question and answer special for episode 50. Submit your questions any way you have to get in touch with me. They're already starting to trickle in. You can reach out with the contact page at historyofpersiapodcast.com or email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram Messenger as History of Persia Podcast or on Twitter at History of Persia. Lysium users can use the message board, Patreon subscribers can message me there, and if you have some other way of reaching out, go for it and ask your questions. For more information about me or the podcast, you can head to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find maps, my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page, with all the various ways you can support this podcast financially. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.